This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. With the world of theatre winding down for the holidays, this week's show takes a peek behind the curtains of the fine art world with a visit to a local exhibit featuring the works of two major contributors to the abstract expressionist movement, plus a chat with an artist who, amongst other things, paints strangely haunting scenes of stuffed animals and a paper-cutting artist whose work illuminates the quantum world and the cosmos. Each December, for the past eight years, crates of artwork by some of the biggest names in 20th century abstract expressionism have been delivered to the formerly Sega Braudis, now Sega Reeves, gallery here in Columbia. The annual Masters exhibit has brought to mid-Missouri work that would otherwise only be viewable in a major gallery in New York or Los Angeles or in a national art museum. Whether you like abstract expressionism or not, there is something wondrous about about standing in a gallery on Walnut Street in Columbia and being a foot away from works created by artists who shaped the art world of the last century. Each year, the exhibit has focused on different mid-century influences, the artists of Black Mountain College, colour field movement artists, or the women of abstract expressionism. And this year, the exhibit focuses on the works of two artists, John Little and Jack Roth, whose names are synonymous with abstract expressionism, but who, despite recognition by critics, curators and their peers, did not reach the household name echelons of, say, Pollock or de Kooning or Motherwell. And I am delighted to have the show's curator and gallery co-owner, Hannah Reeves, here to talk about why these two artists were so impactful. Welcome back to the show, Hannah. Thank you, Diana, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. You captured so nicely uh, so much of what we love doing every December here at the gallery. I feel like Christmas for you is the day that these crates of extraordinary work get unloaded off a truck and you get to handle and behold these groundbreaking works that have in some way shaped every contemporary artist's career. Do you get verklempt when you're unpacking those crates? Yes. Yes, I do. Still, I thought that that would wear off at some point. I remember the very first year that I got to do I've been here for five years. So I remember the first time that I got to do it and just like touching a Picasso, you know, as they unpacked it and and being overwhelmed. And you would think that might wear off, but it absolutely doesn't. There is so much just scale and color and texture in this show that when you behold these pieces in person, uh, it, it really is overwhelming. And so getting to do that all at once the day we unpacked, it truly, it is like Christmas every single time. It never stops being wonderful. <laughs> do you shed tears? I have, yes. And in fact, there was one example when we first got in um, a Helen Frankenthaler piece. This was about three years ago. I remember Kelsey Hammond happened to be (laughs) the person who was in the gallery, visiting the gallery, the director of the Columbia Art League now, um, when we unboxed a Helen Frankenthaler. And we all cried, (laughs) including Kelsey. She's like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. I'm like, I know. Um, (laughs) Just the beauty 
of this kind of work, it really is wordless and transcendent. So you can say words about it, but when you are in front of it, especially when it's larger scale and just so impactfully colored, boy, it really, yes, it is an emotional experience, truly. So these two artists, John Little and Jack Roth, never showed together in their lifetimes. But here they now are side by side in our little town in mid-Missouri. What made you decide to dedicate this year's master exhibit to showing these two artists' works together? Well, first of all, we love utilizing our special exhibits each year to showcase the work of what we call the underdogs of art history. Now, of course, last year showing Picasso was kind of the ultimate counterexample. <laughs> we we kind of needed to step out of it for a moment. But really, other than that, the Masters and even the April special exhibit, we're finding these these little nooks and crannies of art history where something great truly great and shaping happened, but it hasn't really reached its peak. We're not talking about like priceless pieces yet or millions of dollars in play. And so it makes it accessible to collectors, which is a part of what we do. But really, the exciting thing is that we get to tell these stories that haven't been super widely told yet. And so John Little and Jack Roth are both those kinds of characters. They each have work in the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim, Metropolitan, these major museum collections, and those are just a few, and that's not even counting the major galleries that featured them starting as early as the 1940s. So these are names that really belong alongside that of Jackson Pollock or Willem de Kooning in the Annals of History. But like you said in your intro so nicely, they haven't reached that household status moment yet. So we get to be a part of that. That is incredibly appealing to us. And when we thought about these two artists, so one thing that connects them that's maybe not visible from the front end is that we have access, we get to work with the estates of each of these two men. And so that's true for a large number of mid-century artists through our connections around the country and around the world. But as we've gotten to really dig into the estate collections of these artists, we got to see pieces that have never been shown. They, they really haven't seen the light of day. So there are these pieces that have gone through major museums, and there are pieces in major collections. And then there are also stacks and stacks, and frankly, thousands of pieces that had not been seen by the public. And so as we are looking through those, which is its own overwhelming experience, which we got to do with each of these artists at different times, we started to see these parallels, not the least of which is they are men who kept their heads down and kept painting and just made thousands and thousands of paintings over decades long careers, you know, despite not being wildly famous for doing so. So they have that story in common. But I think when you see the exhibit, you'll see that there are these modes of abstraction that occasionally it's like their styles kind of wind together or seem similar here and there, and then they sort of diverge. Again, Jack Roth is constantly changing and learning, maybe a little bit faster paced and changing media every at least every decade. John Little is like growing into his own over time as a color theorist and seeing these points where their paths, just visually speaking, kind of converge 
it started to lead us to draw these kind of almost like lines is what I'm picturing. You know, these lines, they go closer together. They're not parallel at all times. They kind of grow farther apart, but they span a lot of the same decades and they tell similarly interesting stories. And so because of working with the estates and getting to choose works that span from 1947 to 82, we got to pick and choose and draw those lines next to each other. Well, tell us a little bit about both artists. Let's start with John Little. So John Little was born in 1907, born in Alabama. Like so many people of his generation, he did serve in World War II. That is such a common story for these artists who we end up calling post-war painters. You know, um, action painting gets its start when young men come back from war having probably experienced some trauma and and you know i think the theory is needing some emotional outlet and finding it in painting there's also like the convergence of a whole bunch of people in the same place thinking about the same things that happened for the new york school so john little is right in the thick of that he actually became very very close friends with jackson pollock in new york in the late 40s but even before that, he had this other career that people don't realize. He started a textile design business. He was involved with fashion design and textile design. He apprenticed. And this is kind of parallel with his study of painting. And I think it's kind of interesting to relate the two. But he started a business that became very successful in New York City and went on for decades. He also, the other, this is a little other aside, when he initially came to New York, this is before he served in the war, he came as an opera singer. Mm-hmm. So, so he's this kind of multidisciplinary, multi-talented guy. And you'll find as we talk about Roth, really, they both are. But he comes back to New York in the 40s, right into the thick of action painting. And I think his connection with Pollock is probably important to the story as well. He is shown at a lot of the same museums and galleries as Jackson Pollock. There's this real um, moment when gallerists and curators kind of go out on a limb with these fully abstract painters, with these guys flinging paint. You know, there were a number of curators who said something important is happening here. Um, John Little was definitely one of the first, one of the folks doing that important work. He was also one of the first, along with Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, to move from New York City to East Hampton. It became an artist colony of sorts shortly after. And there's a museum now on the site that was the barn that he rebuilt, became his massive studio. And I think about this, too, just as a studio artist, having a big, giant barn in which to make your big, giant color field paintings probably makes a big difference compared to cramming yourself and all your stuff in a tiny New York City space. So John Little is one of the first to do that. And he stays in East Hampton for the rest of his career and just paints and paints and paints. And Jack Roth? So Jack Roth is 20 years younger than John Little. That's probably part of the reason why they didn't exactly cross paths. They probably met at times. He's considered a painting prodigy very early on. But he has these other loves um, in his academic life that are math, philosophy, and chemistry. And while he is studying art, teaching art, and making paintings, he is, for decades of his life, also obtaining degrees 
in these other disciplines. And so when he's first teaching painting, he's actually getting a master's in chemistry. He kind of moves around the country as he moves to academic institutions where he's first studying and then teaching. And ultimately, he gets a PhD in math and spends the main bulk of his career as a math professor. But this thing that is so interesting and admirable to me is that the entire time he's making paintings. He's making hundreds and hundreds of paintings a year. And every year his painting changes. His mark making changes. You can almost picture how his studio environment changes, the materials with which he must have surrounded himself. He gets really into collage in the 60s. And I've started to just picture his work table. So he just really evolves pretty fast. He does action painting. He's in a very seminal exhibit called Younger American Painters at the Guggenheim in 1954. This is right after the Guggenheim has started. Um, he has pieces very, very young in the Museum of Modern Art and in the Guggenheim collection. And then he delves into color field, which is considered second generation abstract expressionism. So that's probably his most kind of known role is that he creates these large-scale paintings that give you this flowing, transcendent sense of uh, like a feeling that comes from color. This is a la Rothko. He actually studied with Rothko um, at the San Francisco Art Institute. And so he's probably best known for that, but then he moves on to collage, and then he moves on to assemblage, and then he kind of comes back to collage, and then he starts putting lines into his color field paintings, and he does some completely unique compositions on paper for the last decade of his life. So, you know, just this extremely dedicated, prolific, constantly changing, constantly learning lifelong academic. He reminds me of a lot of the people who live in Colombia. <laughs> I think it is so interesting when you think about why one artist is more famous or becomes a household name than others. And what is interesting about these two men and the similarities is that art was just one of their interests. You have Jack Roth, as you said, a mathematician, a photographer, a philosopher, a teacher, and John Little, who had a successful textile business. He was also a photographer. Do you think their multifarious interests is maybe why they did not become household names. I think that's a very good theory. It's always hard to to pinpoint, and a lot of it does come down to promotion. But yeah, I do kind of picture each of them in a slightly different way as a person who just keeps his head down and does his work, and his work happens to be painting. I know that we have this tendency to kind of romanticize painters, especially 20th century American abstractionists. But the reality is, if it's your job, artists can be hardworking professionals who are just doing their work every day. And I think each of these artists was that way, you know, maybe not focused on self-promotion. And we can benefit from that because it means that their estates are intact and it means that their work is not wildly, wildly expensive despite being as good as or better than that of the likes of Jackson Pollock. To some degree, I feel like I could walk into a gallery having looked through the works in the show and say, oh, there's a John Little work. I recognize that. There's a cohesion in his artistic voice. But Jack Roth is all over the place. And I have to say that his collage and mixed media assemblage works make me feel like I'm in the parable of the king's new clothes. So what am I missing there? 
yeah, these are a lot to take in. And I will say too, just like in terms of the exhibit, I have consolidated these collages (laughs) in our reading room so that I can close the doors when classes of children come because they're, (laughs) they're not exactly, you know, family safe. He is using magazines of the era. And that does include like Playboy style, you know, magazines sometimes. And there's a lot of pretty risque imagery. And that's combined with like headlines of the time and, you know, what you could consider pop cultural imagery. You know, this is the advent of pop art. And so a moment where artists are reflecting on what it means for something to be part of popular culture. And so I think artists like Jack Roth and more famously, you know, of course, like Andy Warhol, appropriating imagery from advertisement or from other like widely distributed sources like Time Magazine is the artist sort of maybe reclaiming space, but also commenting on what it means to sort of get an image out there especially as a person who's making a handmade image right at that moment. And Jack Roth was so thoughtful through every era in which he lived, every era of recent art history, that it seems very natural to me that he would make that kind of reflection as well. Is there any particular work in the show that really speaks to you? Yes, there are several, but the one that I really hope that people will come and see in person because it was so overwhelming to me to see in person is actually the largest piece in the show. And it'll be immediately evident which one if someone walks in the door. It's the $122,000 one, right? It is. It's the most expensive piece in the show, but it's also (laughs) the largest. It's also incidentally the largest thing we can physically fit in the door of the gallery. So (laughs) it goes on the diagonal of like our biggest door. But it is it's such an immersive experience. And something that I've been talking about with a few visitors already is when I look at this John Little painting that has it has every color of the rainbow and it has all this layering with this very active brush stroke. It makes me think of how he learned from Hans Hoffman, who taught at the Art Students League of New York, was John Little's teacher and the teacher to you know, many, many of the great New York school painters of the next generation. And Hoffman's color theory talked about how juxtaposing these fields of color could create depth. It's sometimes easy to forget that we're looking at a completely flat picture plane. If you look at a landscape, you feel like you're looking into it, but you're looking at a flat surface. And so Hoffman was teaching and then Little was absorbing and executing this idea that even without imagery, like a landscape, a painter could create a sense of depth or a sense of place. And this canvas that is so large and has all this layered color, it really, it just seems like such a prime example of that color theory. And it just seems like this important snapshot of mid-century art history. Are you giving any curated talks over the next couple of weeks? I am. I'm doing it actually on a a customized individual basis. And so right on our homepage at sagareevesgallery.com, our main exhibit, which is featured on the homepage, is the master's exhibit. And you can choose enter exhibit or book an individual visit or book an educational visit. And so I'm booking class visits for teachers through this week. And then all of the other hours that I'm available are available for private walkthroughs. And then that's something that I can customize to the visitors in terms of both like the time frame and the visit time and the content. 
The 2021 Sega Reeves Masters exhibit featuring the works of Jack Roth and John Little can be seen through the end of this month. Gallery hours are Tuesday through Saturday, 11am till 6pm. And although you can book an appointment, you don't have to have one to see the exhibit. You can just walk in. Hannah Reeves, gallery curator, artist and impassioned art historian. Thank you, as always, for spending time with us. Thank you so much. There is something both compelling and haunting about a painting of teddy bears clambering over rubble and tending to their fallen in a work called Revolution, or two teddy bears wrestling surrounded by teddy bear onlookers beneath a sun that appears to be shining through a dystopian smog, all painted in the style of an old European master. And then there's a Polaroid photo of an armless doll jumping across a landscape of mushrooms, one eye watching the camera, one eye missing but shining brightly, a portal to the sun at her back. They give me the same feeling as watching Terry Gilliam's Brazil or the post-apocalyptic black comedy Delicatessen, the kind of weird you can't really look away from. The works are all created by Swiss artist Joachim Knill, who has lived in Hannibal for almost 40 years and who describes himself as having sprouted from a creative family. His latest work explores the seductive beauty and hidden danger of technology as it creeps into the organic biology of nature. So we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 15 minutes. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Joachim. Thank you. I love the idea of you sprouting from a creative family. (laughs) Sprouting seems like the perfect description of so many of your works. What flavour of creative was your family? Well, my father was an engineer, but he was also a um, artist and musician all the time. And when I was about five, he quit engineering and just did music. And uh, he, he ended up doing a lot of avant-garde stuff with one of the first synthesizers and doing you know things like people would hire him to come and show avant-garde music. And he and they would just like squeak around on mirrors and walk <laughs> around the room and make sounds. And everybody was fascinated by it. But he also was into very classical chamber music. So, but then they got into uh, expressive art therapy and um, they would have people over and they would do theater and dancing and painting and just all kinds of stuff. And they'd be running around, joining in and, I pretty much just drew all the time and they draw <laughs> paintings. And <laughs> Did you draw to escape from all this crazy dancing around? Or... <laughs> uh, no, no, no. That was my, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I really didn't like hanging out with other kids because kids were pretty boring. Like kids just like, let's play hide and seek or let's uh, <laughs> do tag. I'm like, well, that's really boring. I'd rather uh, do something much more creative and interesting than that. And, and you know, adults playing, it was, was much more interesting than kids who didn't have as many ideas. So like many children, you had your own imaginary world, which needed populating. Tell me about some of those worlds and who lived in them and how they ended up as gilt-framed paintings in an installation work with a considerable backstory called National Treasure. Well, the the one that became the largest was my all my stuffed toy animals. And I it was like this world was an island and it was called Annie Life. I came up with names and there was a president and I made drawings of the buildings that all the animals lived in. And then there was a map of the city and it was a pedestrian zone. So cars had to park on the outside. So I even had a building code. Wow. And, and then I some, somebody gave me a, a, all these 
teaching materials for teaching about France. And it had all these maps about France, about the agriculture and war machinery and industry. And I kind of altered them and made them about Annie Life. And I ended up playing with those until I was like 12 or 13. I had this world going and I even did like some drawings of portraits of them. And so when I actually came up with the National Treasure installation piece, it was originally going to be an installation for photograph, but it became um, interactive. So it became like a real thing. But I had to come up with a culture because it's all about cultural artifacts being taken out of their cultures and the connection being lost. And then it's somewhere else and things are being sold off and people don't really know what the history is or where it came from. So I had to come up with a culture for this installation and I didn't want to use people because then it becomes about a certain culture and it's specific about that and that could be distracting to the theme and then it came to me like oh I already have a culture and it's the stuffed toy animals I even had portraits of them it was actually already there and and I thought it was perfect because it's like a objectification of a culture that everybody can relate to and, and people will come in and like, oh, how cute. And, and it's often like a reaction people would have to artifacts or, you know, some, some ceramic figure and, and it looks cute to us, but we have no idea necessarily, or people who buy them in an antique shop might not know what that was all about or what this figure was for. And it could have been a fertility figure or maybe it was a death ceremony or something and not, maybe it wasn't something cute, but, but it, it gets confusing that way. And so I, I thought that that's the perfect subject matter to use this culture. So what was the impetus for coming up with this shipping crate that you call National Treasure and in which you have all of these paintings? Well, where did that come from? Well, I was building these insulations for the Polaroids I was making. And you know, I had one that was a room that was all falling apart. And it had themes from 9-11 in it and how our country is in disarray and not really put together well. Like things are falling apart and there's also ominous danger. But it was all very subliminally hidden in there. It's just uh, every detail was something that you didn't necessarily know what it was. But my insulations got bigger and bigger and it was like a whole room but you couldn't interact with it. It was just for the photograph. Then I had a, the next installation idea I had was, was to have this shipping crate in a warehouse with this mysterious national treasure in it that's been shipped out. And, and it has a history, like it was like something that was taken away in a dispute. And then there was a kingdom that acquired it. So there's like stamps all over it. And, and then there was a revolution and then a military takeover and all these entities have put their marks on the shipping crate but so it was really for the photograph of that shipping crate and it's just kind of evolved i mean my ideas i often i think about them for many many years and they'll just be like a snippet of something and if it sticks i'll keep adding into it and it becomes something that makes sense and then some ideas never make much sense and so they never (laughs) happen (laughs) so within this shipping crate do you have all of these paintings that are old European master style in gilt frames. They're of stuffed animals. And this is this treasure chest. And you take this installation to art festivals. What happens when you sell works out of the national treasure? Well, it's the, it's the whole, I mean, I make new pieces every winter for it. 
But part of the installation, it's kind of like a performance piece in a way because um, it's all set up and it's just on the street. And, you know, it's people selling all kinds of artwork and people come by. They don't know what it is right away. And some people read the description. That's what it is about. And then they're like, oh, they look at it in the light of understanding the concept. And some people will just walk in and go like, oh, look how these, these cute animals are. Oh, how creepy. And <laughs> and that's kind of how, you know, a lot of cultural imagery has come into our culture. And we don't really know where it's from. And we have reactions to it that don't relate to the history. And then the people who don't read the description, they go in and they're like the performers of the scene. It's like they're coming in and and you can observe and it's like, oh yeah, this is what happens. People go in and they just see what they relate to and and react to that. And then some people will buy a piece and some people will, well, a lot of people when they buy it, they'll by then know what it's about. But sometimes somebody will buy it. It's like, oh, the cute little teddy bear painting and they'll take it home. And they have no idea what <laughs> what it is or why. <laughs> but it's like they became the performers in this scene. But they don't know they're performing in a scene. Their performance is almost just for you. It's your own yeah, private like, performance. Yeah, or sometimes I have people come and they watch the people go in and they'll actually watch the performance of people just reacting to it. <laughs> And I mean, I've had people just stand outside across the street and just observe what's happening. So you mentioned the room and the photographs you're taking, the Polaroid photographs. So let me let me ask you a little bit about that. First of all, you built your own Polaroid camera because you wanted to do large format 20 by 30 inch Polaroids. And then you create these strange and surreal landscapes, which you shoot on this large form Polaroid camera. So tell me first about the camera. Well, when I went to art school, they had a 20 by 24 camera and uh, Dr. Land from uh, Polaroid, he built one just to impress a board meeting and people loved it. And so he, they made five cameras and uh, they, um, so they gave those two famous artists to use and it was more like a promotion for Polaroid and, but the imagery are, it's beautiful images because they're so, you know, they have the colors of Polaroid, but they're extremely detailed because it's not an enlargement. And we had one at the school that students could use in a class. So I decided I wanted to build one for, that was portable. I could do landscapes with and I just built this thing. And then uh, there was a photographer in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who did portraits, and she had one, but they were going to take it away. And so she came to look at it and wanted me to build her one. And she got Polaroid to come and look at mine, which wasn't working well yet. And they said, okay, well, we'll sell you film, but do not build more cameras. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I didn't really want to build more cameras. I just wanted to have my portable camera. And so I, that way I was able to do this and I just started testing it on small, like on a little vegetable or, you know, a fruit or a stick or something. And it kind of organically evolved that these scenes became larger and larger and more elaborate because originally it was really for, I wanted to do landscapes with it. And I got away from landscapes because they're limited. You're basically just picking things instead of creating them. And it's more of an editing, creativity and editing than in, I'd like to build things from scratch myself. So, Do you think of yourself as a storyteller or a commentator? Uh, maybe more of a commentator, um, even though I don't like to really make a comment. I like to create something that comes from observation and then have people react to it and come up with their own comments. Like people will come up to me and say, so what kind of work is this? What's this style? I'm like, well, I don't know. I make it. 
and then you call it what you want. I'm not interested in a style or in a clear message, but I, I mean, I, I do see things in the world and then I like to portray them and the, all the tension in that, what I see, but not necessarily come to a conclusion. And some people with a national treasure will go, oh, so this, this is really sad. And you're just showing how cultures are taken apart. And it's like, well, but that's also an evolution of being in a global world where everything does mix and new things come out of it. And new cultures emerge out of old cultures being combined. There is definitely something sad about seeing stuffed animals behave like humans. You know, there's this innocence <laughs> and then this, you know, the recklessness of humanity combined into yeah. this painting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always like to, when I paint them, it's always really important to me to make an expression that's not quite clear, but it's clearly an expression. Like, it's like, I don't want it to be smiley, but I want it to be kind of a smile and kind of a frown and kind of sad <laughs> and kind of angry. And it's always this balancing act of being in between all these emotions. And then everybody will see them differently. It's kind of like, depending on your mood, you'll see a different expression. And so I find that really interesting how tiny little tweaks can change the whole emotional expression of something. So let's end with your current body of work called Seed Lab, which is a scientific incubator of manipulated seed pods that is a work of installation art. Tell us the origin story for these seeds and the laboratory they inhabit. Well, it's again, it was a kind of an organic development and also over the years. I was actually doing a show and they have a cast iron furnace set up there and people can carve a bowl basically a mold for a bowl and you can just carve into it. But I saw that you can carve, it's basically a half round object and you can make anything out of that. It doesn't have to be a bowl if you carve deep into it. And I started doing it there and I really got into the seed pods, but they kind of became mechanical, organic mixtures. And just thinking about it over time, I was like, oh, these belong in a lab and maybe they've been created and you know how, how we are messing with all the, plants and like the future like we don't know what's going to happen all the things we're going to create with the technology we have but so i wanted it to be a very um, lab type of pod that you go into where where i can put these in and they'll be like being developed in this laboratory so is the laboratory a little bit like national treasure when you go to an art festival do you have national treasure and then a laboratory with these seeds in them are they for sale how do people see it well, it's going to be interesting. The thing I haven't uh, really figured out yet is I built a laboratory and inside there's like these pockets that's all backlit. The whole the whole lab is like glowing and then the light comes in through these openings with the pots in them. And then there's going to be a little display that will have the price on it, but the price will go down to a ten thousandth of a cent and it will be actually going up during the show. It will be counting up in a kind of a nervous <laughs> pace. And <laughs> so it will it will look like, oh, they're developing and the number will just be a number like in a lab and you don't, you know, you don't know what they're doing except something's happening. And so each one will have its own little development counter and and it turns out that's actually the price. So, so you've got to get in early. You've got to get to the show yeah. early and buy early. It's going to go up. <laughs> exactly. I, I find it a very interesting psychological experiment because there'll be like a 10% 
price change over a two-day period. And then on, on the website, I wanted to do the opposite, to have a price on there that's twice as high or more, that's like really high, and it actually counts down over like in two years, it comes down to the regular price and then it gets cheaper. So that way people will really have to think about what they're doing. And they're like, oh, can I get these on the on your website? And I was like, well, you can. <laughs> but... <laughs> so this doesn't exist yet. I mean, it hasn't been launched yet no i have the laboratory is built and i have about a hundred seed pods now and so it's i just have to make the counters and pick a time to bring it out the strange and mysteriously captivating worlds of joachim knill can be found on his website at joachimknill.com and that's j-o-a-c-h-i-m-k-n-i-l-l.com joachim thank you so much for letting us follow you down your rabbit hole this evening Well, thank you. I love the space where art and science meet and how each discipline has such an incredible capacity to illuminate and inform the other. And it is at this fascinating nexus that interdisciplinary artist Sukanya Mani works. A chemistry graduate of the University of Madras in India, she's a self-taught artist who has lived in St. Louis for the past 20 years. She turns into art her passion for science, philosophy and issues of gender and femininity by creating work which she intricately cuts into Tyvek with an exacto knife. The results are gorgeously intricate, hanging filigree works that use light and gravity to define the space they occupy. And through these works, Sukanya explores questions of time, light, the cosmos, and the quantum world. Her sculptural works have received public art commissions from multiple cities across Missouri, and her work titled Try to Get Closer is on display at St. Louis Airport through August the 22nd next year. I am so delighted to welcome Sukanya Mani to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Sukanya. Hi, thank you for having me. Your work is at once completely tangible and yet ethereal. It has almost a cloud-like sense of occupying space, both there and yet not there, defined by the space in between as much as by the particles of Tyvek. How do you describe your work? Well, that was a beautiful description. (laughs) I don't know if I can top that. See, I'm a visual artist, not great with words, but I will try. So I like to look at my artwork as experimentations, one after the other. I am trying to explore uh, what is in my mind, and I'm trying to do that physically using different materials. And right now I am in a very Tyvek phase. (laughs) So um, it started by just having a material and not having like the negative and the positive of it. That's how the cutting started. It's basically sculpting, but you're sculpting on paper. You're just removing something to create an interesting pattern. That's how it starts. But then there is uh, an interplay of color. There's shadows within the work. And there is a lot of curving the paper to create a three-dimensionality. And um, I try to do minimal. I try to do as little as I can with the paper itself and let nature play with it, let the light and the space play with it. So I try to interfere as little as possible. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I try to nudge it the way I want it to go. That's, that's kind of where my headspace is at right now. Well, tell me the origin story of your paper cutting work. 
So it started with, um, in 98 is when I came to the United States and I was on a dependent visa. And um, usually when you come on a dependent visa, you don't have a work permit and you have to wait for a couple of years. So that's what happened to me. And I decided to teach myself art during that time. I started with canvas and paint and brush because that's what I thought art was. But I was, um, I was never really happy with the way my artworks turned out because I could not really express what I wanted to. And I experimented with tons of different materials and tons of different ways of doing things. I went a whole route of taking out all the colors from my palette and worked only with black and white. And that kind of nudged me to positive and negative shapes like light and shadow. I mean, it sounds like a very natural process, but it was very um, intentional at that time. And that led to positive and negative spaces, which I started cutting out with paper. And that's where it started. But there's just so much you can do with this, you know, everyday material paper (laughs) that it just fascinated Mm -hmm. me. And I'm still working with it. So what was the moment when you realized that you wanted your art to be informed by your science training? That has always been a part of it. Uh, I've always tried to create art reflecting what's in my mind. And I have always been a very curious uh, knowledge seeker, especially in the realm of science. I am fascinated by cosmic science, specifically time and light and gravity and black holes and all of that stuff. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, read a lot of books on that matter. And light, space, time, and gravity just naturally melded into my artwork because I was using the material to, to physically, I wanted to use gravity and light and space as physical concepts within my installations. And that experiment worked very well in some of my pieces. And so I continued. It got a little more challenging when we come to concepts like time. But but therein lies the challenge, right? How do you express very fundamental concepts that we all are aware of that are such huge parts of our lives, but we don't think about them too much. (laughs) It's just part of who we are. But uh, with my art, I wanted to express it physically. So as a child, you grew up all over India as your father was a civil engineer. And although you loved art, your parents advised you to pursue the sciences and you chose chemistry, which given your fascination with the cosmos and the quantum world, I would have thought that astrophysics would have had more pull. What did you love about chemistry? I think it was more of, I mean, I wanted to study astrophysics, but the math was just too abstract for me. I could not keep up with the math to study that part of physics, which is another reason I do what I do, because I understand the cosmos (laughs) visually through my art. I really make the artwork for myself. (laughs) But chemistry was just, you know, I, I was good at it. I got into it. And that's why I did it. It was not like I was specifically interested in chemistry. Um, Yeah, I could not get into the astrophysics world that easily. (laughs) (laughs) 
So talk to me about your art making process. Are you a meticulous planner or do you sit in front of a sheet of Tyvek and let the art spirit move you? That's interesting, isn't it? You have accurately described two completely different ways that artists approach their artwork. Very interestingly, my art uh, touches both of these because the starting point is Tyvek and knives. And I, it's an organic drawing. I do have some sort of a plan in mind, the size and how the artwork would flow and so on. And the cutting also has some planning to it in my head. I don't draw it out, but I do have a specific cut that I repeat over and over again. But when it comes to installation, it's a very, very organic process. It, I have to work with the site that I'm in. So all of my work is site-specific. Light is a huge part. Uh, where does the light come from? Where will it be most effective? And where do the shadows fall? And also, you know, which part, where do I install the work? Does it go on the ceiling or would it go on the wall? So installation is a very, very organic process. It's almost uh, out of my control. I work with what is available. But the planning and the meticulous, um, completely concentrating and doing being 100% in control, that comes in when I'm cutting the paper. So you are only producing work basically when it's been commissioned. You're not doing work on spec for, for any gallery. It has to be, you have to be asked to do it so that you know the space that it's going to be in. No, no, I'm sorry. I don't know if I express myself well. No, when I'm cutting, I mean, I'm constantly creating work, whether it's going somewhere or not. This is just, uh, this is just a compulsion. I have. I'm just cutting paper all the time. But how I put them together and I, how I install them is what happens when I get into a specific site. Does that make more sense? Okay, so you are you are creating the works that you are inspired to create, and then when you go to the space they're going to hang, then that almost becomes another process of that particular piece of art, how you hang it, where you hang it, where in the room, where the light comes from. That's almost part two of the process. Exactly, you're absolutely right. And part one of the process, I almost have 100% control of how I'm cutting it, where I'm cutting and all of that. And the installation is just so much more organic and it depends on the space that the artwork goes. How would you say your works have evolved over the past few years? It is a journey. I see art making as a journey. And when I look back five years, seven years, 10 years in the past, I can see how far I have come. Um, I have learned many more techniques and I have much more control over the final product because of the experience that I have gathered. Having said that, I'm sure a lot of other artists will understand we're constantly exploring new materials or newer ways of doing things. So every project is, you know, almost starting from zero because it's a different idea. It's either a different size, a different cut, a different way of hanging. The one thing that I can say is I have much more um, confidence in the process. I, I do not get as agitated over, oh, my God, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Rather, I've started to think like, well, this is what I'm doing right now. Let's see where it goes. And I'm sure wherever it goes, 
that's fine. That's that's where the art wants to go. So I've kind of um, I have learned to trust the process I've, through experience. <laughs> mm. Going back to what you were saying about when you're hanging works in the gallery and that part of the process and how light and gravity really then becomes part of that part two of your process. How is it going to, where is it going to hang in relation to the light? How is gravity going to pull it into a different shape? I mean, how much do you know what is going to happen when you suspend a work? Every work is different. You hang it. I mean, how often are you surprised? <laughs> I would say almost every time because <laughs> because it's uh, the three concepts that I work with, light, space, and gravity, all play a fundamental role in the final shape of the artwork. I can uh, manipulate it here and there, and I do understand the overall intent and the overall image is what I keep in mind, not the little details. So the idea is that I want a viewer to come in and both see the sculpture in its entirety and also come in closer and see the intricate cuts. So I want it to be a almost like a two different visions that the viewer is getting. And which is why the light the space and the gravity all play a very important role. There are some ways, there are a few pieces that I can install exactly the same way every time. So I I have some, uh, I would say about 90%, I would know exactly what it's going to look like. But I do, I do love the surprises myself. And I give myself lots of time because I may do an entire installation and then I just won't feel that it's right and I have to start all over again. But I, I absolutely enjoy the surprises and it's, it's, it's been very rewarding. To, it's, it's almost like a child come to life. <laughs> you, you have some part of the creation, but the personality and the energy that the child brings in is re- really surprising. And most of the time, I'm pleasantly surprised. I love that analogy. I'd love to have you talk about a couple of your installation works. I want to ask you about one called This Time It Will Be Different. Can you describe that work for us and talk a little bit about the inspiration behind that? Absolutely. Thank you. That particular piece, it's a 12 foot long abstracted river of time. So I, every time I explore a concept, like for example, when I'm talking about time, I have to make multiple iterations. Each one completely looks different, is pulling uh, different philosophies and talking about different things and so on. This particular piece, um, I cut it as a perfect spiral. So I had designed it as a spiral. I cut it as a spiral and I have ripples and arrows cut within it to show direction because that was the main theme of the work was how time is directional. You're going from the past into the future. That's how we are all experiencing time. Um, When it came to installation, that baby just doesn't listen to me. It just has a (laughs) mind of its own. I've installed it in three different places. And in each place, it has has just taken on a life. uh, I, I call it a her. I call my pieces her and him. And I've given them names. Um... She likes to breathe, (laughs) likes the space, and she has taken on a completely different form in every location. And I love that about her. (laughs) 
Another work that I wanted just to touch on focuses on another area of your interest, which is gender and femininity. Uh You have a work called Sola Singa, What She Wore, which I love. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, that's just like you said. Uh, I grew up in India and uh, a big part of my identity as a woman was the way I presented myself. I'm sure that's true in many, many parts of the world, but this is just my lived experience. And Sola Singar deals with femininity, how, how I presented myself and how women from different parts of the world present themselves to the external. But I'm also interested in looking at the same things that women used to adorn themselves. And Sola Singar means 16 ways of adorning that a woman uses, like, for example, braiding your hair and putting flowers in your hair, which is a which is very common in India. Uh, we wear bindis, which are the little dots on the forehead, uh, bangles in our hands. So each of them, there are 16 different ways that women adorn themselves. Um, But I was interested in looking at the flip side of it, which is when there is sexual assault or violence and rape, it is exactly these adornments that are called into question. Like, why was she wearing perfume? Why was she wearing the dress she was wearing? That's why she asked for it. And I remember stories of growing up when my mom would say, well, you need to look like a girl. You need to wear a dress. You need to wear a bindi. You need to braid your hair. You need to look like this. And what you look like is what leads to violence in some cases. So I was interested in exploring the duality of women and um, clothing and different ways that we present ourselves. Hmm. A lot of expectations on women. A lot of expectations. (laughs) What is the next story you want to tell? So right now I am working on, um, I'm working on light. So I'm looking at the visible and the invisible. That's my craze right now. <laughs> that's what, that's the phase that I'm in. I'm looking at uh, how light is, you know, both a wave and a particle. That's how it's described in physics. But then light also is the science of the visible, right? That we are able to see things and experience the world and communicate with each other in a certain way, because we're able to see certain things. Um, It also calls into question, what does it mean to be invisible? And how in different mythologies around the world, or even uh, modern magic stories, talk about invisibility as a big part of storytelling. So, you know, all of these things are running in my mind right now. So that's The other thing that's another factor that plays into it is also the idea of being invisible or not being seen or heard, um, not having power in a situation. So there are just so many different ways to look at the visible and the invisible. And that's that's what I'm exploring currently. Well, I can't wait to see how that turns out. You can see the work of artist Sukanya Mani on her website at sukanyamani.com and that's spelled S-U-K-A-N-Y-A. 
M-A-N-I.com. And if you are flying through St. Louis Airport between now and August of next year, you can find her work near gates E34 and 36. Plus, she just told me that she will have an installation work at next year's True False Film Fest here in Colombia. So, Kanya Mani, thank you so much for sharing your art with us today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guest this evening, Sega Reeves Gallery Art Curator and Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves, painter Joachim Knill in Hannibal, and paper-cutting interdisciplinary artist Sukanya Mani in St. Louis. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. And please do remember to include KOPN in your end of year giving. We really, really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.